How many of you think sequences are important? Yeah? I think they are. Um, when I was here the last time, if you recall, it snowed, and Pastor Wayne sent me a note, and he said there was going to be snow on Friday. He says, what's with you? <laughs> well, thankfully, we didn't get that snow. But sequences are important. When I was here the last time, I led off in the Sunday school hour talking about why should I care or be concerned about missions. You may not remember that. That was 2019, actually four years and two days ago. <laughs> Hard to believe that much time has gone on. Of course, that was pre-COVID. I don't even think we knew the word COVID at the time. The only association I had with coronavirus was with cattle, and, you know, and all of a sudden now the humans have it. But uh, putting things in sequence, I spoke that morning in Sunday school about why should I care, be concerned about missions, and then the next step I was going to take you was into this, which I uh, prepared at that time, but we transitioned from that and did not do this overview, but I did a, a, a focus on the necessity of effectively communicating the gospel. Some of you may remember that because I talked about teaching the Bible chronologically. We looked at elements of the gospel. I had Pastor John up on stage to disclose the story of Noah. Any of you remember that? He did a great job at that, but I think I exasperated him from playing the role of one of our indigenous people. And sequences are very important. I learned that a few weeks ago. My wife had written TGIF inside of my shoes. You know what TGIF means? Thank goodness it's Friday. And I said, why did you write that in my shoes? And she said, that doesn't mean thank goodness it's Friday. It means toes go in first. <laughs> but that's some of her humor. But uh, this morning I want to talk about engaging on the edge. And let me explain what the edge is. We look at the local church and we look at the outreach of the local church and we look at the boundaries of where the local church extends. And of course the church can extend itself into the world through missions which you participate in and which you do. And today I want to delve into this and I'm going to disclose to you what it takes to reach an unreached people, indigenous people that live beyond the reach of the gospel. I want to unpack that for you through uh, a, a presentation here, and hopefully by the conclusion of this, you will see the elements that go into engaging with unreached people. Now, you're probably going to say, I could never do that. I said the very same thing, but with training and equipping, it is very possible. I'm going to step into a little video here just to put you into the, the temperament of where we're going, and uh, it'll be some things that are unusual to you but we're going to step into this. So here's our than what we're used to, isn't it? Uh, the last time I was here, I did not really introduce myself or my wife. Uh, my wife is back in Arizona, but uh, this is the two of us when we stepped out to serve in missions. We're in our 40s. Um, I think I have to get to my slide to figure that out, what year of ministry we are in, but we're originally from York. Uh, we both grew up in York County. We grew up in three-letter towns. You know any three-letter towns in Pennsylvania? What was that? Yo, yo is my hometown. You know any others? How about Cly? My wife was from Cly. And we felt we were meant for, for one another because we grew up in these three-letter towns. But that's what we looked like when we engaged with missions. I actually had a bit of a rug on my head, which I don't have anymore. Uh, it's falling out. But uh, this is us today. And uh, we've been together for a very, very long time. Uh, this year will be our 49th year of marriage. I can't believe we've gotten here this quickly. Uh, we are actually in our 47th year of ministry, and this is our 43rd year serving in missions. And it's amazing how we got to this point so quickly. And we often said we wish we had another life to do it all over again, what we've got to participate in. But we work with an organization called Ethnos 360. That name may be new to you. Uh, up until 2017, for, for 75 years, we were known as New Tribes Missions. And New Tribes Mission decided we needed to change our name because we were moving into closed access countries of the world 
where the gospel had never been declared and having mission in our name made it very difficult to get into those countries. Some of the countries that we work in are named here. Uh, the asterisk represents 15 closed nations that we work in right now, and we're actually even moving into more nations. My wife and I have been mentoring young people. We will be talking about one of those families tonight and actually going to a closed access area of the, of the world to show you what the need is there among unreached people. But Joyce and I got to spend a third of our life serving in the country of Papua New Guinea. We were actually purposed to go to Bolivia and work, and then some change-up of things took place, and we began to realize what the needs were in the country of Papua New Guinea, and God began to move our heart toward there, so we ended up serving there among two different tribes. We moved into the jungle. Uh, it did not look like this at the time, but among the Pawaya people in the eastern highlands. They look a lot different than you and me, don't they? They dress differently. They act differently, they speak differently, and they smell differently. I can recall times that my wife would put perfume on her wrist, and as she was sitting with the ladies, if the smell got too bad, she'd just kind of sit her, her chin into her hands, and she could breathe the perfume. But you know what? Eventually, that all dissipates, and you get used to being with the people. You fall in love with them. And uh, we got to be involved with church planting in that tribe. Our partners were from Great Britain, uh, Jack and Isa Douglas, uh, dear, dear friends of ours. And uh, Isa passed away a few years ago. Jack moved from Great Britain to be with his son and daughter-in-law in, -in um, Michigan. Jack is 85 years old, and he came to visit us a few weeks ago, and we had a wonderful time together. And then eventually my wife and I transitioned from there, and we moved to an island area, and we worked among a people group called the Loco. Do you know what Loco means in Spanish? Yeah. It means crazy. Uh, they were not the crazy people. We might have been crazy for moving there, uh, but it was a coastal area. We were inland, uh, an elevation of about 300 feet, a very, very hot and steamy climate, and uh, we served there. And then because my wife was born with renal disease, she had difficulty in the climate, and we transitioned out of there back onto the mainland, and we served in support role ministries as well. I trained as a graphic designer in college, never worked a day of it in my life. I used to think I threw away a lot of money and time to get that equipping, never thinking I would use it. And here God turned the corner for us, and we, we were able to use that. But we left the field the end of 1999, and we transitioned back to the States because my wife was needing to have a kidney transplant. So at the time that we moved back to the USA, we stepped into mobilization. And when they asked us if we would be interested in that, I said, no. And uh, I said, I don't believe that would be our gifting. And they said to us, well, we think it may be because during our furloughs, God opened the door for us to have many, many meetings. Matter of fact, living in the tribe, we had people from another language group come and say, we would like to have a missionary. And we told them, we can't give you anyone. And they showed up a few weeks later and they brought us a 70-pound pig. And we said, what's this for? And they said, you told us you couldn't give us one. We want to buy one. And we said, well, that's not what we meant when we said we couldn't give you one. We had no one available to give to you. And so we're working among these people groups. And as we would come home on furlough, we would engage with churches. We would get invited to youth groups. And we just began to challenge people with the need of taking the gospel to unreached people. And during our four furloughs, the Lord raised up nearly 40 missionaries. It was incredible. Uh, we were in a meeting one day, and a, a young man walked up to my table, and he said, I'm getting out of the military in two months, and I would like to come serve in missions. He was an aviator. Actually, he took care of Air Force One for the president for 18 of his 20 years in the military. He is now servicing our airplanes in the country of Papua New Guinea. How incredible is that? We have another tribe. I did survey work up in that tribe back in the 90s, and we wanted to place families there. And we had three families working in that particular tribe, and one of those is a former MLB player for the New York Mets. Can you imagine walking away from a several-million-dollar contract to go plant a church among an indigenous people? But that's what he felt God would have him to do. All his life in baseball, he kept asking the question, what is God's will for my life? And many of us ask that question, what is God's will for my life? And the way we unpack that many times is, where am I going to live? What am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? And he began to realize he was asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, what is God's will for my life? 
he realized he should be asking the question, what is God's will and how do I fit into it? And he began to see that he could fit into that as a church planter. So as a result of our furlough ministry, God raising up laborers, they asked if we would step into mobilization. So we did that. Uh, we, you can see the, the uh, states that we served. We actually end up moving up into the New England states. We still lived here in Pennsylvania, but we up into the New England states because we had no representation there. And then uh, in 2000, we made a transition and we moved to Arizona. Uh, we have a daughter there. She's 45 years old. She was in need of a kidney as well. Uh, this kidney disease in my wife's family is hereditary. My wife was number eight to receive a transplant. It was number nine. So we said we would like to be there for that. We would like to be there with our five grandchildren. And the mission said, well, that's great because we have no mobilization effort there. Would you go there and do that? So that's what we're doing right now. Uh, mobilization looks like this. I'm not going to read all of these, but you can see some of the things that we are involved in. But as mission mobilizers, we seek out those who can use their gifts and abilities in taking the gospel to unreached people. That, that does not necessarily mean you have to move in among an indigenous peop people and be a church planter. Maybe that's not your cup of tea. Uh, for me, language in high school was like, no, I, I failed language. I went to summer school, and the teacher only gave me a passing grade because she didn't want to hold me back and wanted to see me advance into 11th grade, which I did. So when we began to consider missions, it's like, I'll never be able to do that because I can't learn another language. But we have people who uh, work in support role ministries. I just put a, a post up on my Facebook Friday night that we are desperate for school teachers in the country of Papua New Guinea and, and business personnel and, and builders and, and other type uh, aviation mechanics, car mechanics, builders, any of that can fit in and serve in missions. So we are mobilizers uh, for Ethnos 360. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement? Are you familiar with that? I was telling Pastor Wayne about it. It was established in 19, uh, 1974. It's a 15-week course that focuses upon God's heart for the world. It is, does not belong to Ethnos 360. It, is, it was uh, developed under the World Center for Missions out of Pasadena, California. And I sent my wife to that course in York County about 12 years ago. And it lit such a fire for her, she became director of that course and conducted it in the county uh, for about five or six years before we moved to Arizona. Her role of ministry right now, in addition to our mobilization effort, is she oversees the courses in Phoenix, Arizona. And she's actually director for the Southwest. So she's taking care of that study course. It's actually going to happen this afternoon from 2 p.m. till 5 p.m. at a church in Scottsdale. So we're going all which ways in our mobilization effort, raising up people to come serve with us, and we're very happy with that. So we moved to Arizona. This is our daughter and son-in-law. And there they are with their five children. And then we actually have an office worker that serves with us in our home. That's this little guy. And uh, his name is Perry. But I want to get back to where all this began for us in missions. This is where it all began. I met a girl when I was 16 years old. And I really liked this girl, and I began dating her. And on our third date, she says this to me. She said, if our relationship became lifelong, would you consider being a missionary? Now, put yourself in my place. I'm 16 years old at the time, wanted to hang out with girls, and on our third date, she's thinking, you know, lifelong relationship. And in my head, I'm thinking, I just want to hang out with girls. I'm not interested in getting married, but I don't think she meant right then. But she was looking future. And it's like, man, I want to date her again. So what am I going to say? This is all going through my head, you know, really quickly. Put yourself in that place. And you know what I did? I lied. I said, sure, I'd be a missionary. And then I went home and I said to my mom, what's a missionary? You know, <laughs> but I got to date this girl again, and I got to date her again and again and again, and eventually uh, we did marry. But as a kid growing up, I knew what a missionary was, and this was my concept of a missionary. I thought a missionary was around 93, 95 years old, probably weighed about 20 pounds. I believe that missionary carried a, dog, uh, a Bible big enough to beat up a dog. That was my view of a missionary. I didn't realize what, really what a missionary was. And uh, my wife and I married in 1974. Uh, I came to faith in Christ a year and a half after we were married. I lived a double lifestyle through my teen years, and I was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but 
I opened the Bible one night and I began to read in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a very scary chapter for a non-believer. And as I read through that chapter, I began to realize that God wrote a whole chapter in the Bible describing me. And by the time I got to Romans 5.8, I was a new creation in Christ. And things began to turn around. Uh, I was able to lead another to Christ within 12 hours of embracing the gospel myself. Uh, began a discipleship ministry as I was being discipled. We did that out of our home. And we engaged about a three-and-a-half-year ministry in evangelism and discipleship. We were able to reach 22 of our 26 neighbors. And during that journey, we said there's got to be something more we can be doing in serving Christ. And we came across this verse that Paul wrote in Romans 15:20. His ambition was to declare the gospel where it had never been proclaimed. And we said, where in the world would that be? We had no idea that there were unreached people in the world. And as we began to gather information, we realized that there were many, many people groups that needed to hear the gospel. And even today, the unreached world, there are a lot of people, perhaps even you, who are aware of what it means as an unreached world. We get the question oftentimes, are there really unreached people in the world today? Let me take you quickly to a little video, video just to disclose what that... Millions of people live in it every day. People who have not heard or seen the light of the gospel. They worship gods they fear, spirits who control them. They perform rituals and sacrifices to protect them from their neighbors, to get enough food for another day, to survive illness and injury. There are millions of them, millions of men, women, and children tribal people all across the world in remote, never-before-reached places of the earth, isolated, with no access to salvation in Jesus, living in darkness, despair, a life without hope. Thousands die every day without the opportunity to hear the gospel, to know the light and life that is Jesus Christ. Is this our responsibility? Could this be our darkness as well? Reach into the darkness. Reach to those with no opportunity to know Jesus. Expanding the reach of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's kind of interesting when you think about that. Unreached people in the world today. I can recall moving in among the first tribe that we worked in. And I began to realize that the destiny of these people was not the same destiny as I was going to experience. They never heard the gospel. They were never able to embrace that message. And that meant one thing, their eternal destiny was hell. And I thought, wow, is their fate really their fate? Or was it our failure not to come to them sooner? And that was a great responsibility that we felt. But I want to look at our world today. Uh, right now, we've got 7.9 billion people in the face of the earth. That is amazing to realize that there are that many people in the face of the earth. Out of that number of people, there are 7,151 languages spoken. Can you imagine that? Over 7,000 languages. Pastor Wayne, can you name them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And out of the 7,151 languages... There are 16,300 people groups. This, this is debatable. I've heard numbers anywhere from 10,000 up to 24,000. group is identified by their language and culture. Now, as you know, Spanish is spoken in different nations of the world. So there's different pockets of people that would fit into that. But out of the 13,300 people groups in the world today, 6,905 of them are marked as unreached people groups. That means there is less than 2% Christian, evangelical Christian presence among them. And then out of that 16,300, there are 3,250 people groups who are unengaged. That means there are no Bibles, no Christians, no churches, no way for those individuals ever to hear the gospel. And these are the type of people that we want to target are those who have never had any engagement with the gospel. So when you combine the numbers, it comes up to somewhere around three point... Whoops, I'm sorry. Something happened to my slide there. There's 3.2 billion people on the face of the earth that have never heard the gospel. I do want to take you to a video now 
this is a little bit jarring, but to realize where the church is today in light of sending laborers and how the resources are being used. Let me go to that video. Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of his return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, let's classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population World C. C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or co-workers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right. The vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion. And together, they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that 700 billion given to all Christian causes, only 45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work. But how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep, 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. $5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all mission's money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. And that 2 billion people today is up to 3.2 billion. I'm going to show you some statistics in the worship hour that are very, very staggering. But I want to move on. Uh, as I mentioned, we served in the country of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is the size of California. And in that small land area of the world, we have just about 8 million people now. And among the 8 million people, they speak 862 languages. Think about that. Just like German and French and Spanish and Hungarian are all different from one another, every one of those languages are different. Some of the culture is similar, but most of the culture is very different. Let me fly you to the country of Papua New Guinea. Third world country, uh, very backward, very, very different. Arrival there can be very challenging. The sign over the gate said welcome, but I couldn't help but wonder, what was I being welcome to? 
Everyone's so different. Apparently, I'm far more entertaining than my friends back home let on. To be honest, it's kind of like waking up to find out that you're the main character in someone else's favorite sitcom. I guess we all had our opinions on what the next few weeks would be like. For me, it was like climbing up a hill. With each step, my perspective changed. Gradually, I gained a broader view of a world that until now, I knew nothing about. Like with any adventure, there was both excitement in the discovery of things I never knew and the all-too-human fear of the unknown. The truth is, I had no idea what I was in for. people that we brought in for an internship program, but I want to step from that into what does it take to reach and unreach people, such as us going in among the Powaya, going in among the Loco. So this is our mission headquarters base up in the Highland Mountains. Looks like a nice flat piece of land, doesn't it, with green grass. That's actually 5,000 feet elevation. It's on a 16% incline, and all encompassed around there is 130,000 tribesmen who speak the Benabena language. So we want to go from this location out to a location where the indigenous people live. How are we going to do that? Well, for us, the first thing we had to do was find them. So we would fly out of the structure jungle looking for the smoke rising up through the jungle floor to be able to identify if there's people down there. And then how are we going to get to land the airplane? Then take rain cars like that. So we're going to have to figure a way to map our way in there. So we took the instrument readings from the aircraft, and from that we would map our way in. You cannot drive in. There are no roads going in there. But we did take uh, logging roads into the mountains as far as we could go. What do you do when you come to a bridge like this? Look at that. <laughs> you just go pick up other planks and you move them to get across. But actually, um, we would uh, dismount here, and then we would begin our trek into the interior. How would you like to hike that? Any of you like to really hike? I mean, really like to hike. I could make you despise hiking, okay? I mean, it is really rough. Uh, to get into that first tribe, uh, you could hike 11 hours a day for a full week before you would actually get into the area. So getting there is very, very difficult. What do you do when you come to a pass like this where the team is hiking in and you've got to get down over cliff walls that are over 2,000 feet high? Where we actually located there in the tribe, where I showed you the picture of the airfield, if you went 100 feet off the airfield, there was a cliff that dropped off 430 feet. There were landslides off of that. We used to hear them at nighttime, and my wife used to say, how many years do you think it's going to take until the landslide reaches our house? And I said, I don't think we need to worry about that. But you cross the river at the bottom, and there was a 1,200-foot cliff wall there. And then encountering the people for the first time, our people were tree dwellers. They built their homes up in the trees such as this so they could keep a watch for enemies uh, that might want to come in and harm them. But what do you do? When a missionary walks in among of young warriors like this and they're armed with bow and arrows, what are you going to do? We don't take weapons. We're not there to harm the people. We're there to reach them with the gospel. And uh, there was an encounter with some of our missionaries going into an area and encountering a group of people like this. They were uncertain what to do. So they thought they would make a lot of noise and see what would happen. And when they made a lot of noise, those people dropped their weapons and they dove into the pool of water where they were. But a little old man came up and, and began to say something to them in the trade language, which they understood. And as they drew him out in conversation, they found out that as a little lad, he had run away. He was raised by Australians and he learned the trade language. So God happened just to put this individual there. So we had some form of communication. 
And uh, we learned that those who had dove into the pool of water had never seen people with our color skin before, and they perceived us to be spirits of dead ancestors come back to life. And uh, when they came out of the water, they were shaking. You know, it's like, oh, they're cold. No, they weren't cold. They were that scared they were convulsing. So you want to begin to engage with these people. And uh, so we got an invitation to move in among them. If you're going to move in among them, you're going to need a place to live. There are no hotels to rent. There are no apartments to rent. So that means you're going to build a house. And building a house for us in America typically looks something like this. We order our lumber from the lumber yard. We get all the materials, the brick, whatever we need, and it's delivered to the site and we erect a house. Not so in the jungle. There, <clears throat> all the lumber you need is packed inside of that tree. You just have to cut the tree down and unpack it. So we used a chainsaw. We dropped a uh, 115-foot rosewood tree, uh, nine feet up the trunk. It was 42 inches in diameter. And then we began slabbing timber to be able to build a house. And we began using uh, some cut material. We used some poles. Uh, we even slabbed our own shiplap siding. And this was what our house looked like in the bush. Looks pretty comfortable, doesn't it? And uh, we used solar. Uh, we caught rainwater. Living in the rainforest, we had over 400 inches of rain a year. Living in Arizona right now, people are talking about how much rain we have. We have had seven inches in the last 12 months. And I'm thinking, my goodness, we used to get eight and nine inches in a single day, you know. So getting yourself situated in the bush. And then are you going to want to do that hike in and out? What if you get sick and you need medical help? We do have medical training where we can take care of our needs and the needs of the people. But we needed to have access to get our supplies in. So you need to build an airfield. So what do you do? You start cutting down trees. And you can cut down as many as 3,000 trees to build an airfield. And then you call your pilot and you tell him, hey, we took the trees down, we have an airfield. And he flies over and says, well, you need to take the stumps out of the ground. I can't land there like that. And so it ensues taking uh, the stumps out. Fortunately, in some areas, we had a demolition expert who was able to bring explosives in, blow tree stumps out. Now you've got big holes you have to fill in. And there was a gentleman on the field. He was very wise and smart. And he figured out how to dam up streams and dig trenches, and he rode soil in there to fill those. And then eventually you got an airfield of nothing but soupy mud. And it's like, well, you can't land an airplane in there, but eventually it dries out and it becomes like concrete and it greens over. And uh, it looks like that. So that, uh, that hike of getting in there, more than 70 hours of hiking, you can fly there in just 23 minutes. Now, what would you rather do? <laughs> yeah, okay, all this hiking... Oh, and by the way, picking leeches off of you. I wish you could have heard my wife scream the first time she got a leech on her. But she got used to it, and we'd pick them off, and we would go on. And uh, I, actually, I thought leeches would have been a, a great cure for the coronavirus. You know, let them just draw it out of you. But nowadays, uh, building airstrips takes a lot of time. You can spend 18 months building an airstrip. And some years ago, out of Zeger Brothers, we actually shipped a bulldozer over that we could take apart and uh, fly it in small payloads into the jungle and put it back together and we could bulldoze trees. But e even so, it's a lot of hard work. So now we are using helicopter. And we actually have three brand new helicopters allocated for Papua New Guinea. One of them is on the ground right now. We have another one being prepped to be sent over. Our aviation school is actually three and a half hours south of where I live in Arizona. And then the third one will go over early next year. Let me show you what it looks like going into the area in a helicopter. Hawking Tower, November Tango Hotel is north of beam, uh, nine or thousand, currently seven miles. That's all virgin rainforest, no roads. It's either on foot or by Robert aircraft, but if you're going into areas and there are no airports, you can't land if the helicopter can set down just about anywhere if there's a small enough, uh, if there's a large enough clearing. I'd go with the aircraft, believe me, okay? That hiking is hard. Uh, first steps then, language and culture. I want to go through this quickly. I have about 15 minutes to do this. 
I want to go through this with you, okay? A few elements of language. You may say, I could never learn a language. You know, you hear what our language was? Uh, We had 18 vowels, nine of them spoken through the mouth, nine of them spoken through the nose. It sounds like this. Could you hear me saying some of that through the nose? And if you had a language helper that you were working with and he had a cold, it sounded like everything was coming out of his nose. I mean, it was really, really difficult. But I want to show you how intelligent you are with English. English is one of the hardest languages in the world. We have hard tribal languages, but let me show you. Okay, we talk about context. We best understand any concept, written or oral, in context of its expressive language. So here I have um, a critter sitting on the back of an elephant, and he's saying, what do you want me to do? And the guy's answering, no. Well, that's totally out of context. You know, it doesn't make any sense. So we can say... Context matters, or we can say context matters. I'm talking about matters of context. So you see, context can go two different ways. How about this? The bandage was wound around the wound. Would any of you read that the bandage was wound around the wound? No. The association of the picture and the words let you know the context of how to speak that. What about this one? The farm was used to produce produce. Same word, spelled the same way, but carries different meaning. How about this one? The soldier decided to desert his desert in the desert. I, this is your language, okay? I didn't, I didn't make this up. This is, this is English language. It is the goofiest language. And then we go to idiosyncrasies. We have eggplant, hamburger, and pineapple. There is no pine or apple in a pineapple. There is no ham in a hamburger, unless you make it out of pork. And there is no egg in an eggplant, okay? But again, I'm putting it on you. This is your language. It's my language too, okay? I can't escape it. How about this? Paradoxes. Items that contradict. I've been in quicksand that wasn't quick. It was very slow. You just sank very, very slowly. And why do we call a boxing ring a ring when it's square? Or how about a guinea pig? It's not from Guinea, and it's not a pig. But yet, those are the names associated with it. And then there's stuff that doesn't make sense. We can say the plural of tooth is teeth, but the plural of booth, beef, if you want to have fun, go out to lunch after church and go in, and if the girl says, do you want a booth or table, say, we would like to have a beef. And they'll look at you like you're nuts. But again, this is our English language. How about this one? One goose, two geese. So if one moose, two meese, no, no, okay? Think about that. Or how about this? If teachers prot, why don't if teachers taught, why don't preachers prot? And if a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? By the way, that first people group that we worked with, they were former headhunting cannibals. I am actually adopted by one of our tribesmen, he's with the Lord now, but he had killed and eaten four people during his lifetime. I could tell you treacherous stories about that, but I want to move on. I want to talk about unwritten languages because the languages of, unri- of indigenous people, unreached people, are not written down. They are only oral speakers of that language. They don't know what pencils and, and paper that. So we move in among them. And uh, this is a chart that shows you what some of our characters look like that represent the sounds that we make. So I'm going to circle a letter here. What's that letter? A, do we all? Okay, I'm going to give you a word. And I want you to pronounce this word for me. I want to hear it. How do you say that word? Say it again. How many said Papa? Did anyone say Papa? Okay, good on you. Okay, if you look, that is a phonetic A. A phonetic A is pronounced ah. So if you said pop uh, you're saying the A two different ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the first one you said as an ah, the second one you said as an uh. If you said the uh sound, then you made that, that sound because that symbol there represents another type of A, which we call uh, as you would say, pop, pop uh, but it's papa. Now, using that vowel, how about this word? In that word, put, hear the uh sound, put, but that, you're saying that's a U, and a phonetic U is pronounced oo. So how would you say that word if that U was a phonetic U? Poot. Any golfers here? Any golfers? I want to find out how many go out on the green and poot. Okay? <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? But again, 
phonetically, we see, say A, E, I, O, and U. Phonetically, it would be A, A, E, O, U. Okay? Fortunately, our language was phonetic, and it made it real, real easy. So here's another one. This is the Greek epsilon, and we find that sound in the word bet. Hear it? Eh, 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 and bet. But if that was pronounced as a phonetic E the way it's written, if I was writing bet phonetically, I would write it B epsilon T. If I write it with a phonetic E, the E has the A sound. Doesn't this mess with your head? The E has an A sound. But again, it's your language, not, okay? It's crazy. So then it would be bait, like you use when you go fishing. It's like, oh, this is crazy. And then look at this symbol. You probably think it looks like a question mark without a, a period beneath it, but it's actually a glottal stop. You are stopping the air. We would have that in this word. How many of you say mitten? Does anyone say mitten? Most of us, I think, say mitten. And that little hook sound in there, you're actually stopping the air in the middle of that word. You don't realize you do it. We have many words in English that do that. So we had lots of uh, glottal stops in our language. Like we had a, a, a chief. His name was Pedii. So he had two little glottal stops in there. And these are just a, a few elements of language, so making sense of the language. It's not difficult. Then let me give you a little test. I want you to put your hand in front of your mouth, about an inch in front of your mouth, and say the letter B. Now feel the puff of air that hits your hand. Say it again, B. Now say the letter P. Which one has greater puff of air? P. They're aspirated, but one has a stronger aspiration just because of the character of the letter. There were times we could not differentiate between these four letters. Like if you say a T, your tongue is at a specific place in your mouth. If you say a D, your lips are drawn back, your tongue is at a different position. There were times I'd have to walk up to a guy, you know, and have him say a word. I'd put my hand right in front of his mouth. And if I do that to you, you're like, oh, that's weird. And even our personal space. Like if I stood here for the rest of the time and, and talked, you see, he's very uncomfortable, Okay. <laughs> Deb could handle it, I'm sure. No. <laughs> but again, uh, these are just some of the cultural innuendos that we have. And let me talk about culture. And I'm not talking about the swab that the doctor puts in the back of our mouth. And, you know, I used to be amused because he'd stick it in the back of your throat and he'd swab it. And then he'd hold it up and he'd look at it and he'd always say, hmm. I never found out what hmm meant. But uh, let me talk about culture real quickly here. I have eight minutes, okay? Culture has to do with the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that are accepted generally without thinking about them and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. So I put the American flag and the Statue of Liberty up there and immediately communicates freedom to us. We know that. I put a picture of, of these native Indians up there and you realize that these are native Indians of America, okay? These are things that are associated uh, for us in that. Now, I, I wrote out, these are characteristics that I came up with of American culture. My list is a lot longer, but I couldn't get them all on the screen, okay, without making multiple slides. But look at these, okay? We pull over for an ambulance, okay? Why? Because that's the thing that you have to do in America, okay? And, and here's another thing. I never understood this one. We, we, we have a funeral where we uh, come and we honor and respect the one who has passed away. And then after it, we have a big dinner, like, wow, what's that about? But that's part of our American culture that we grew up with, that we're ingrained with. How about this? We work for 40 or 50 years, and then we retire. Okay? All of these things that I put up here are actions based upon educational rationale. We were taught all these things. This is the way you act as American. These are the things that you do. And it's a lot different with our tribal people. Okay? Men have multiple wives. And you realize that when we did that drama up here, and I said to John in the drama, if you can go back four years ago, um, he had one wife, and as a tribal guy, I had many wives, so I was the big man, you know. Um, but their, their, their societies are really different. There's a lot of deceit, manipulation through sorcery, through witchcraft. It's a payback society. Uh, if I give you something, payback is expected. If I offend you, you better believe you're going to get paid back with some type of treachery. Sorcery, spirit appeasement. This is in one of our tribes, placating spirits. They make these masks so that they can hide from the spirits and think that they can placate these spirits and chase them away from their villages. It's a darkness that they're rooted in. And then worldview. Worldview is what drives the culture and belief system. Let me show you a few things about animism. Our people are animistic in the worldview. They believe that everything has a spirit, the rocks, the trees, the, the sky... 
everything has a spirit and that they have to placate or manipulate those spirits in a certain manner so bad stuff doesn't happen to them. It's a vicious cycle. Round and round and round it goes. They, ne they never really figure it out. So animism is a deep part and their culture is driven by fear-based thinking. Boy, isn't it great how the gospel dispels fear in our lives? We don't have to live under the bondage of fear. But they, their lives are directed by all these ancestral practices, and they never know whether or not they get them right. And then how about where did we come from? Part of the worldview. Among a tribe, looking down at the bottom, are two uh, cassowaries. Um, we call them muruks. And uh, there's a people group that was north of us who believed that they were created by these two birds. Our people believe they were created by two frogs. But I put the picture here of the dust of the earth, that God created man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into him, and he became a living soul. It's kind of interesting when you look at creation. God spoke everything into creation except for man he actually formed from the dust of the earth. In Mexico, I was down among the Tatamata Indians some years ago, and, uh, of course, it says in Genesis, and God formed the man from the dust of the earth. Among the Tatamatas, their worldview says that God and Satan co-created the world together. Think about that. Now, think if you're a missionary coming there to bring them God's word, and their belief is that God and Satan co-created the world, and you say, I have God's word, and they're like, uh-uh, you're the devil. You know, we are the people of God. They believe they are the people of God. It took our missionaries 15 years to break through a cultural understanding to be able to bring the gospel to those people. That is darkness. That is just sheer darkness. Rituals. There's all kinds of rituals. Secret spirit houses that the men have. The women cannot go inside. I'm showing you ladies a picture, okay? If you were in New Guinea and saw the inside of this, you would have a death sentence on your head. Women are not allowed to see that. But they go through all this ritual. And then fear. Look at that lady's hands. What's, what's different about her hands and yours? She's got fingers cut off at the knuckles. You know why? Every knuckle that is cut off, and of course you've got two knuckles, one at the top, one in the middle, and you can see how many she has cut off. That shows how many children she has lost. And that is a ritual that they go through in belief that they're placating the spirits. I mean, it's just utter darkness that they live in. But our goal as church planters is to establish a thriving church. And when I was here the last time, I unpacked the gospel, and then I unpacked the method of how we bring God's word to them. We teach the Bible chronologically from, from creation right up unto the resurrection of Jesus. And as we put the story together, it makes sense. But... The heart of the Great Commission is to make disciples among all nations. And, and that's our desire as Ethnos 360 is to establish thriving churches among these people. And we want to then convey to them the things that God has given us to teach them. Uh, these are just seven elements of relationship that we have as teams. It involves our donors. It involves our partners. It involves our leadership. But th this is part of a strategy of what we use in, in order to take the gospel to unreached people. And, of course, as we move in among them, we're learning the language and the culture. If we're going to bring the gospel to them, we've got to keep them alive. So we've been given limited medical training, and we do medical every day with them. Uh, that's building relationship. Uh, we teach literacy. Remember I said their languages had never been written down. They're an oral society. So what we want to do is to teach them how to read and write in their own language. Why would we want to do that? Give them the Bible, okay? But are we just going to teach them how to read and write their own language and then translate the Bible and give it to them and walk away? No, we need to teach them. And that's why I unpacked out of order the last time I was here the focus of how we teach the Bible chronologically because it goes through the Old Testament and it shows the thread of the sacrificial process that God implemented at that time, which points to the Lamb of God, Jesus, as the coming Redeemer. So we work through that. Um, Bible lesson prep and translation. Once you are fluent in the language, you begin to develop your Bible teaching materials. You start to teaching those lessons. And as I said, we work our way from creation to the cross. And the really neat thing is at the culmination of the gospel, we never have to say, hey, would you like to believe this? Raise your hand or walk the aisle. We don't have aisles, so we can't say that. They're all sitting on the floor. And, uh, but God's word says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So faithfully teaching the word of God, they come to engage with the word of God and they become believers in Christ. Missionary work is hard work. You're analyzing language. And this is one of our missionaries who's asking for help. You know, they just need help out there. Even though we've been skilled with linguistic skills, 
Uh, we still have consultants that come in and, and help us, but we gather our data. It's no longer gathered on paper. It is now done on computer, and actually we can do it on smartphones. They set our keyboard up uh, within the language of the people, and we can do all of our elicitation, do all of our notations on there. We can even do our translation work from a smartphone. It's amazing what we can do. But all of this preparation, the ultimate goal is to get to the point where we begin to teach God's word and bring them into an understanding of who Jesus is and what he provides for them in salvation and how it liberates them from the darkness that they grew up in. It is amazing, and we get to do that. Whoops, I'm sorry, hit the wrong one. Real quickly, so what I just showed you here was the years of preliminary work. It can take anywhere from three to five years to get to the stage once you get settled there, once you're fluent in the language and can begin teaching and then have believers and then you step into your discipleship. So after all those aspects of getting situated there, then we're teaching, uh, we're translating our teaching materials, we're doing pre-evangelism teaching, laying the foundations in the Old Testament. We do our evangelism when we get to the life of Jesus and the gospel. When we have believers, we got the work of discipleship, establishing leaders who can reach out to the outlying villages because we want to see modification happen within context of the people reaching their own and then even going into the language groups that they work with. I am out of time. I'm going to wrap it up here and let Pastor come close us out. How did you get permission to even do the airfield? On your first contact. How do we get permission to do the airfield among first contact? Uh, the people in discussing with them, having letting them give us land that we could build an airfield on because it makes accessibility much easier. Uh, let me give you a for instance of something that happened. Can I do this quickly? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, we had a young man in the tribe. He was a mute, and he also had epilepsy, so he would have seizures and stuff. He went two hours away from the village and slept in his mother's garden, built a fire, and during the night uh, in the little garden house, he had a seizure, and he rolled into the fire, and he burned off all five toes. And he showed up the next morning, walked two hours through the jungle, through the swamps and everything, carrying all five toes that he picked out of the fire, and he went to our partner's house, and um, our partner's name was Jack, you know, Jack of all trades, and he went to Jack to see if Jack could put his toes back on. Having the accessibility of the airplane, we do medical work, but we have no idea how to do skin graft. So we called in the airplane, got him taken out to the, the, the hospital. But uh, when we went there, uh, they knew the hardship we had of getting in, and we told them, you know, if we had the space and we could make an airfield, we would have the accessibility, which was going to benefit them, and it benefited them as much as it did us getting our supplies in. And so. they were open to that. Yeah, yeah, they've been very open. On that delightful story, <laughs> let's take a break for a few minutes and get ourselves worship. Feel free to come and ask questions.